listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I have to start my day off with at least one or two cups. I make it by hand. I usually use a pour-over. Sometimes I'll break out the Chemex on the weekend, but honestly, it doesn't matter. You could be using a Mr. Coffee. You could be using... Any cheap automatic machine, you might even have something a little fancier. But that doesn't matter. What does matter, first and foremost, is the beans. You have to start out with really high-quality beans, and that's going to pretty much guarantee, no matter how you make your coffee, that you're going to turn out with a really good cup of coffee or espresso, depending on what you like. Now, just say no to the burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee that you find in your grocery store. And I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A coffee.com, and use my code JDP10, as in Jelly Donut Podcast 10, one zero, and you get $10 off your first purchase. JDP10, and you get $10 off your first purchase at Kova Coffee. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. As soon as you know it, they roast it fresh. And it'll be right on your doorstep for you to enjoy in the morning or whenever you enjoy your coffee. So if you like the show, support Kova Coffee since they support us and you'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have George Perks. George is the global macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. He covers markets and economies around the world and across assets, relying on economic data and models, policy analysis, and behavioral factors to guide asset allocation idea generation, and analytical background for clients, ranging from individual investors to large institutions. George started his career at Bank of America. He graduated from Duke University with a major in public policy, a minor in economics, and certificate in markets and management studies. Enjoy my conversation with George Perks. George, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. George, well, it's great to have you. So the first thing I like to start off with guests is going back to the global financial crisis. Talk a little bit about what you were doing at the time and how you were thinking about markets when everything was going down and maybe if it changed your outlook of how you think about markets. So I graduated from high school in the spring of 2008. Uh, So, you know, when the first 
cracks were emerging in the global financial system in 2007 and 2008, I was a high school student. Um, so I was not thinking about markets at all. I was thinking about organizing um, the prom celebration and, you know, our high school graduation parade and, you know, playing football and passing classes so I could head off to college. Um, so I wasn't really paying any attention at all until things really got going in the fall of 2008 when I was taking an intro economics class. Um, and we had, you know, problems on the blackboard about, you know, what are the macroeconomics effects of whether, you know, we should bail out this bank or that bank or, you know, what, what should we do to save the audio industry or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so I started my major, which was public policy studies um, in the spring of uh, 2009. And, you know, there was a lot still of, I think, um, whiplash from the sort of shocks that had just come through the system and, you know, the macroeconomic effects of the financial blow up and, and so on and so forth. So it was interesting to see sort of, um, I don't want to say a state of denial, but certainly a state of confusion in real time and some of the sort of the institutional thinking around the economics discipline um, and around, you know, the relationship between financial markets and the real economy. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks for the intro there to kind of frame the conversation. Now, as far as how you're thinking about markets now post global financial crisis, we've we've come a long way, um, you know, ten plus years now. And how are you thinking about the markets as far as where the where the buildups are in credit? So we have corporate credit that seems to be leveraged up pretty high, and then the whole debate regarding kind of sovereign debt. And whether you can even look at sovereign debt and compare it to a personal or corporate balance sheet. So back in 2008, you know, the banking system and the, the mortgage area, how are you looking at markets now and where the, the, the different um, inefficiencies are? Not inefficiencies, rather um, buildups in, uh, in over, overconfidence. Um, so I think in general, comparing the psychological backdrop of markets today to where things were in 2006, 2007 is apples and bananas. I mean, it's not, it's just completely different things. Um, the degree of obsession from market participants and pundits and analysts around finding the next crisis is something that's been palpable since 2009. And it has not emerged in part because people are so focused on trying to find it. Um, it's a truism that, you know, when you look both ways, it's a lot harder to get hit by a bus that you don't see coming around the corner, right? When you're looking at when everyone's very careful crossing the street and making sure that they, you know, look left and nothing coming and look right. Okay, nothing coming and I'll look back and look left. And now I'm worried about buildups of credit in CLOs. And so I'm going to look right now. I'm worried about, uh, right. you know, business development companies. So I'm going to look left and back and forth. And, and you're never going to get hit by the oncoming bus in that scenario where you get hit by the oncoming bus when you say, oh, everything's great. And you just walk across the road and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, yeah. I don't think, you know, no economy is, is, you know, perfectly resilient to shocks. And I wouldn't say for a moment that um, the U.S. economy is um, exempt from, you know, the, the normal sorts of economic shocks you can see um, hit economies. Um, what I will say is that the banking system today is radically higher capitalized um, and much, much less 
uh, leveraged. I mean, those are two sides of the same coin, but um, bears repeating much less leverage in the banking system than there was pre-crisis. Um, there is a lot of debt relative to output. Um, so if you look at debt to GDP ratios for you know corporate sector debt, um, which is in the Fed updates quarterly, um, or if you look at uh, non-mortgage consumer debt, um, which is again, updated multiple times or each quarter in a couple different releases the Fed does. Um, both of those things are, are relatively high relative to GDP, but then again, interest rates are relatively low relative to history. So carrying cost of the debt is not unreasonable at all um, relative to history. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I think if you're going to get worried about macroeconomic shocks and, and, oh, well, we don't want debt building up in specific sectors, that's fine. Um, but I think that's a different concern from um, being worried about the financial sector having a lot of debt and a lot of leverage in the financial sector. And the reason for that is that the financial sector is unique, right? It propagates shocks as opposed to, um, you know, being the the origin for shocks. Um, and, you know, if, if you have a financial system that's well capitalized and has relatively low leverage, then if you have large debt buildups in other parts of the economy, then that those may not necessarily have the same effects that they would when, you know, things, when they start to delever, um, if you had a very highly leveraged financial sector. Um, and I mean, really the, the perfect example of that is 2001, 2002 versus, um, 2007, 2008. Um, in 2001, 2002, the financial sector was much less leveraged than it was headed into 2007, 2008. Um, and so when you saw a catastrophic blow up in, um, you know, fixed investment relative to credit financing in uh, basically the telecom sector and the, the tech sector in 2000 and um, 2000, 2001, things started, the wheels started to come off and there was a long bust from 2001 through 2004. No one really talks about that because it didn't propagate. Um, whereas in 2007, 2008, when the financial system started to fall apart, um, the, the shock to credit um, the, the the shock of deleveraging in the household sector propagated elsewhere because the financial sector was leveraged so highly. So I think that's really the, the key thing that's different today versus versus 2007-2008. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense as far as looking at markets. And when you look at some of these shocks, having that market sentiment swing so far to the other side to where everyone is is it's kind of that you know howard marks talks about this when the sentiment swings over all the way to the other side then it's the the fear and greed cycle exactly. where we haven't really had that in this market we've had like you said actually almost kind of the opposite going back since right after the crisis almost every single year so it's it's kind of interesting to to have that kind of phenomenon in, but also, it's as each year goes by, then I think there's more credence to the fact, okay, this could be the year, this could be the year, but we've gone, you know, 10 years and, and we've been kind of sailing along. So I, I think that's a pretty interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't think there's any reason to suspect that um, the simple length of an economic expansion or length of time without a significant um, decrease in, um, you know, lending to a given sector, you know, I, I don't think there's any reason to suspect that just the length of that is a reason to think it's going to end soon, right? I mean, I, that's just that's way too simplistic. I mean, that's like saying, um, I don't know, it's been a long time since we had a cold spring. So we're due for a cold spring. Well, no, I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors that go into whether we have a cold spring or not. It's not a perfectly wrote, you know, um, it's not, it's not a, um, independent set of, um, 
I guess the, 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 the fallacy is when you go into a casino and there's a, um, a roulette wheel that's hit red, you know, 10 times in a row, does that mean the odds of black are any higher the next time you spin the roulette wheel? No, they're not because each roll is independent from the prior roll. So your odds of hitting black on the t- on the 11th spin after 10 straight reds are no higher than they were on the ninth spin. It doesn't change. Um, and so I think that's, I think people tend to think that, um, you know, the, the end of expansions and the, and, and behavior around markets is, um, you know, uh, serially correlated when in reality, I, I think it's a much more independent series of binary events, um, like a roulette wheel spinning in a casino. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know in Las Vegas, they take advantage of that behavioral bias and they actually, or a lot of the casinos have a screen there, an LED screen showing all the past uh, roles. Exactly. People people often, a lot of people actually use that to place their next bet when when it's the the gambler's fallacy. Exactly. So so let's switch gears a little bit and go to the balance sheet, um, the Fed's balance sheet, and obviously central banks around the world have been been easing. But when you look at the balance sheet before 2008, it grew to around $800 They injected a bunch of liquidity. It got all the way up to $4.5 And we were told they were going to start rolling it off, and they started rolling things off. And more recently, we've had this repo issue where they're, you know, buying more at the short end of the curve, these these 30-day bills. So let's talk a little about the balance sheet and how you're kind of viewing that um, kind of holistically. Yeah, so I think the first thing um, it's important to remember about the balance sheet is that um, the, the Fed's balance sheet is not only affected by monetary policy. Um, so mm-hmm. prior to the crisis, um, there were very rarely any excess reserves. Um, the system was operating under um, what's called conditions of reserve scarcity. And um, when the Fed needed to change the Fed funds rate, they went out and did that via um, op- operations to change the level of reserves um, above or below mm-hmm. um, the, the level that they needed to be at for everyone to have the right number of reserves. Post-crisis, that is no longer the case. And the biggest single factor, if you had to point to one factor for that, is high-quality liquid asset uh, regulation. So prior to the crisis, there was no sort of requirement for banks to have a certain percentage of their assets in um, very liquid, very easy to sell assets that could effectively prevent a run on the bank, right? So if you're a big bank and your balance sheet is entirely composed of loans that have an average maturity of five years, um, and then you have you know, your minimum level of required reserves and a bunch of deposits go out the door, you're in big trouble, right? Because all of those assets, all of the liabilities that have left the liability side of your balance sheet, that's the deposits, have had a um, coincident withdrawal in assets on the asset side of the balance sheet, and that's your reserves. And so now you're, you don't have any reserves. You've got to sell loans, monetize loans, and put those into reserves to keep your reserves at required levels and or fund deposits that are flowing out the door, right? So that process... Um, is no longer something banks really need to worry about in large part because of regulation requiring a certain percentage of their assets to be in high quality liquid assets. Reserves fulfill that role in um, bank regulation as well as T-bills and some other stuff. It's basically T-bills and and, um, reserves. 
So if you're a bank and you need to suddenly hold more of these assets, one of the things you can do is hold reserves, right? And that means that instead of the required reserve ratio dictating the number of reserves that banks have to hold, there's also this added HQLA regulation where banks need to hold more reserves. And different banks will respond to this in different ways. So if you look at the US banking sector, who holds specific volumes of reserves at specific times isn't always going to be the same. Some banks will decide that they want to meet their HQLA portfolio requirements through reserves alone. Others will say we'll hold a bunch of T-bills and maybe some reserves. Others will say we'll just hold T-bills. Other, you know, there are a variety of offsetting um, factors that can change how much you need to hold in terms of HQLAs as a percentage of your total assets. And so when it comes down to it, there's now this heterogeneity across a variety of different banks and across the system as a whole that has effectively increased the demand for reserves in a very untransparent way, um, well beyond the required reserve level that's set by the Fed as part of reserve ratio requirements. So, um, that I think I think if you if like for someone that doesn't intuitively understand that and thinks oh well you know the Fed is just going to return to the pre world to the pre um, crisis period where you know they had zero effectively you know it bumped around by a few billion dollars here or there but effectively zero excess reserves beyond what's required by um, minimum uh, required reserve ratios and you know we can't get back to that place and so something's wrong and like the economy is going to crash and the banking sector is messed up no 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 no, no that that's that's all dead wrong. What's happened is banks have a different reaction function in, in terms of their reserve holdings now than they did pre-crisis. And as a result, how the aggregate reserve balances behave as an economic variable is very different from pre-crisis. So, you know, with the repo, how this plugs into the repo question is banks didn't have enough liquidity available to pump into the repo market for specific dates. There were other exacerbating factors that we don't need to get into too deeply, but suffice to say there were exacerbating factors and that's why this ha doesn't happen every day. Um, temporary, you know, this was, these were factors that lasted a day or a week or a couple months as opposed to a permanent backdrop. Um, that is what drove the repo crisis. There was a massive misdiagnosis by a number of pundits who are, you know, widely followed or claim to have expertise in this area who said, mm -hmm. oh, well, if banks can't fund repo, that means banks can't fund their balance sheets, which means everything's going to blow up. We're having a financial crisis. The Fed has to pump uh, liquidity in or everything's going to blow up. That, that was never what was going to happen because banks mm -hmm. don't actually fund their balance sheets in the repo markets. It's just part of what they do to facilitate liquidity. What happened was there weren't uh, there wasn't enough reserves out there to meet the demand for cash and or for for cash is the wrong term. There wasn't enough reserves out there to meet demand for reserves. And as a result, that shoehorned into the repo market worst of all, but other markets as well. Effective Fed funds traded much higher and a number of other short term rates traded much higher all because there weren't enough reserves in the system to meet the demands of the banking system at, that, is, that are a function of both their lending and a variety of reserve um, management regimes that are both driven by Fed policy and by policy evolution post-crisis around macroprudential policies. Yeah, and you brought up um, on actually on your podcast a really great, you know, you talked about this in a lot of detail and you brought up a point about how we can think about reserves and you brought up the point about thinking about it as kind of a checkbook uh, or a checking account for banks because reserves are, are actually dollars, but it's a sp specific type of asset. Is that the way we should be kind of thinking about it? 
Yeah, reserves are just reserves are reserves are a checking account held for banks at the Fed. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really important just to step back um, and sort of define right what is um, when when you hear the term reserves that can mean one of um, two different things typically um, for commercial banks reserves are an asset right for the Fed they are a liability right so. When a commercial bank is required to hold a reserve, either by um, their required reserve ratio, so that's basically you're required to hold a certain percentage of your total deposits in these assets, or through the high-quality liquid asset um, formulation, which doesn't specifically require you to hold reserves, but that's how much of it is expressed. Banks basically go out and purchase these assets that are called reserves, right? And all the reserve is is a credit to a bank. So the bank has an asset, the Fed has a liability. It's a credit to the bank, a debit to the Fed. That Those are, are like a checking account. They're like, um, mm-hmm. it's like you going to the bank and you have, a, you, you're required when you go out to buy a home to have a certain amount of money in an account at a bank, right? A certain dollar number, similar concept, right? Um, so yeah, that that's that's all it really is. Um, and the supply and demand for those reserves is going to be determined. We've talked a lot about the demand for them. The supply for them is going to be driven entirely by the Fed, right? The Fed is the one that is, that is explicitly controlling the amount of reserves in the system. And they do this two different ways. They can either go out and purchase long-term bonds. Um, so for instance, if you're buying a 10-year note, um, you're, you're, the way that happens is you're buying, you're, you're crediting a bank or a dealer with reserves. A, re, a dealer will then probably um, trade those reserves for something else at another institution. But eventually that winds up as an asset on a bank's balance sheet somewhere. And the Fed, the, it's got a liability in terms of reserves. The Fed's credit um, it, or, or asset is the bond that it's just bought. And so um, that's sort of the flow. Like QE is just basically turning um, is 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 an asset swap where you're turning the private sector's holding whatever you know the aggregate private sector's holding of treasuries into bank deposits. Um, the banks have the asset of the Fed, Fed funds. The um, whoever their depositor is has a deposit asset that is eventually exchanged from um, the treasury that was purchased. The other way that the Fed can manage their, their the level of reserves is shorter term purchases. So for instance, or, or repos. So um, overnight um, one week, you know, term repo uh, term repo over specific periods with low liquidity, like the end of the year or the end of the quarter um, purchases of short term bills that will roll off and then have to be repurchased or allowed to roll off um, in periods of less than a year. Um, that sort of reserve management is very distinct from long-term uh, quantitative easing, which is we can't eat, we can't lower interest rates further or we can't push financial conditions any looser. And so we need to permanently expand the balance sheet um, via the, the uh, swap of private sector holdings of treasuries into private sector holdings of deposits. Right. And post-crisis, there was a change where the Fed, as you alluded to, stopped only solely relying on open market operations and then started paying interest on excess reserves, which also seemed to be something that they're working through of trying to understand that dynamic. Is that the case as well? Well, so um, I I think it's important to understand what interest on excess reserves are. So um, Mm -hmm. 
pre-crisis, as I said earlier, we are operating in this in this uh, regime of reserve scarcity, where to move the Fed funds rate, the Fed has to go out and repo in bonds or repo out bond. Well bills or bonds, um, either repo them in or repo them out to push the Fed funds rate up or down. Um, once the Fed started expanding its balance sheet on a permanent basis via quantitative easing, or at least a semi-permanent basis via quantitative easing, um, there were now more reserves in the system than banks needed to meet their required reserve ratios and whatever other demand for reserves they might have. So you've gone from a uh, from a from a regime of reserve scarcity to um, an excess reserve regime. In that excess reserve regime, if you want to control interest rates, i.e., you don't want interest rates to fall deeply negative or you know fall to zero, but instead stay between zero and twenty-five basis points, or if you want rates to be at one to one and a quarter percent instead of you know wherever, um, then you need both a floor um, on the amount of interest being charged and a ceiling on the amount of interest being charged for reserves. Um, so, interest on excess reserves was a way to anchor. Um, Fed anchor short-term interest rates around the top of the Fed uh, range. So the way this worked in practice is if if I'm uh, a bank, right, and I um, want to hold more reserves, I can hold those reserves in excess of my reserve requirement, and I will still receive interest on those, and I'm anchored to those interest rates as opposed to whatever the market rate for the marginal reserve held at the marginal bank buying or selling reserves is. And basically what the effect of that is, is just keeping um, the uh, Fed funds rate in a tight range that's prescribed by the Fed as opposed to you know, having it be very volatile, swinging around in this very strange regime where there's a lot more reserves than banks actually want to hold. Um, so IOER, we have now actually transitioned away from where IOER is helpful because we are back into a regime of reserve scarcity. It's more complicated than pre-crisis because it's dependent on HQLAs as well as required reserve ratios. Um, mm -hmm. But it is still an, a regime of reserve, reserve scarcity, which is what drove the repo market mess. Um, so in that regime, that IOER anchor is no longer relevant. You're you're talking about um, about other tools to keep things in place, and that's where the new repo facilities that the Fed has or sort of new, they're not actually new, but they're reopened repo facilities, bill purchases, where they're trying to make sure that the level of reserves is roughly adequate to keep the Fed funds effective rate in that tight range. Right. That all makes sense. Now, going back to what you said about the asset swap, let's explore that a little bit and unpack that piece. So you mentioned that the asset swap, whether it's treasuries or MBS for reserves, how are you looking at the balance sheet? You know, one camp looking at it as okay, this is this is an asset swap, and then you have another camp saying this is something more akin to debt monetization because even though the Fed isn't buying the treasuries straight from the the Treasury Department, they're buying them from these primary dealers, but it, it's basically kind of doing the same thing now. And then going to speaking to the point of, okay, the balance sheet, once they roll off the balance sheet, then that will um, that will kind of return, yeah, complete that cycle, uh, but that hasn't happened yet. So how are you looking at that piece and what would you say to to someone in the other camp? Well, so what do you mean? I'm, 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 I'm confused what you mean by complete the cycle. You mean return the balance sheet to 800 billion US dollars? 
Right, right. Well, yeah. Okay, so my, my response to that is to challenge the premise, right? And the premise of that question is that the, the nominal size of the balance sheet in, you know, without adjusting for inflation of the value um, should be the same today as it was in 2007, um, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I think it's fair to describe the premise of the question that way, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, Right. so if that's the case, I just want to throw out there, um, GDP in Q4 of 2007 was $14.6 trillion, $14.7 trillion. GDP today, and again, this is current dollars, GDP today is $21.5 billion. Mm -hmm. GDP has risen 50% risen from where it was in, in at the end of 2007. So without doing anything else, without any sort of adjustment for how big, you know, what the change in the demand profile for reserves has been without any change in, um, you know, how the financial system operates, anything without going there at all, at a minimum, at a bare minimum, the Fed's balance sheet needs to have expanded by at least 50% from Q4 2007 to now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we would have a Fed balance sheet you know, with $800 billion in assets today, to me is completely ludicrous because that implies rapid shrinking of the Fed's balance sheet relative to the, to, to the economy as a whole. Now, obviously the Fed's balance sheet is much, much larger than the roughly 1.2 trillion it would be if it had just kept up with the pace of GDP growth. I'll, I'm happy to acknowledge that. Um, I just think it's the first thing that we need to do is set like a fair, you know, X, um, you know, like, like, if things had just continued on in 2007 as they did, you know, yada, yada, yada. Okay, fine. Then the baseline is 1.2 trillion. It's not 800 billion. It's never going to have been 800 billion. That would be just from, for organic growth of the balance sheet. Organic growth of the balance sheet relative to the size of the economy. Right. Right. So organic growth of the balance sheet relative to the size of the economy with no change in demand profile for reserves or um, other Fed liabilities, then the, the anchor point today, and this changes over time because GDP grows roughly 5% per year and over the space of a decade, that compounds quite quickly. Um, so, you know, it's a moving target. But today you're looking at like, oh, okay, well, why isn't the Fed balance sheet down to 1.2 trillion? Well, okay, fair enough. Let's talk about that. So as I discussed previously, we went from a regime of, you know, extreme um, reserve scarcity dictated solely by required reserve ratios for, you know, Fed banks have to hold X percent of deposits in, um, in reserves, right? And if they, you know, if they don't hold that, then the Fed gets mad and tells go go buy deposits, and so that creates more demand for, or go buy reserves. That creates more demand for reserves, and as a result, we've you know ex, you know as a function of just deposit ratios, required reserve deposit ratios expanded the the size of the Fed's balance sheet. As I said, today, that regime no longer applies. There are still demands that banks have minimum required levels of reserves relative to the size of their deposit base. However, we also have this second demand profile for high quality liquid assets, right? And so that has had a huge impact on demand for Fed reserves. It's, it's really a significant impact and it's, it's not one that can be met um, exclusively. Like, like the, if the Fed were to just keep rolling off the balance sheet, we would see ongoing problems like we saw in the repo market in um, the summer and the fall, right? That would keep happening. And the reason for that is because we would have certain parts of the calendar that have idiosyncratic stuff going on where suddenly there is not enough liquidity in the system for um, short-term interest rates to stay right where the Fed wants them to. And as a result, markets go, go completely haywire. All the Fed has to do to stop that is make sure there's enough temporary liquidity in the system to keep rates where they should be. And that liquidity rolls off when it needs to be. And 
there you go. Um, the if we had completely unwinded the QE portfolio, the SOMA portfolio of long-term mortgage-backed securities and um, treasuries and some tips as well, um, if we had completely unwinded that, then the Fed would have had to go out and buy an enormous volume of bills or massively expanded repo operations to meet the demand for reserves posed by this change in the financial system relative to pre-crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also important to note, by the way, that there is effectively no more federal funds trading in the United States. Um, there used to be a very vibrant intraday and day-to-day market in swapping around um, reserves from one bank to another. So one bank ends up with more reserves than they need. That just gets punted over to the next bank that that has fewer reserves than they need for you know reasons that have nothing to do with Fed policy. Um, you know, flow basically settlement flows of cash or settlement flows of payments between different banks or lending differences or deposit differences mean okay. You know, this bank is short reserves. This bank is long reserves. They trade at the federal funds rate, which is what the Fed is targeting, and everything works great. That market is basically gone, and um, institutions are much more hesitant to trade rapidly, you know, large volumes relative to their necessary holdings in Fed funds. And as a result of that, you need more Fed funds in the system to make sure everyone's got what they need. So um, that's another factor in addition to the SQLA changes that has driven up demand for reserves well above where it was pre-crisis, holding everything else constant relative to GDP. I see. Now let's shift and look at rates a little bit here. So when you're looking at rates, uh, U.S. rates, obviously you get the positive yield on a relative basis compared to almost anywhere else. When you look at equity markets reaching all-time highs and then you look at rates where they are, we, we were down almost one and a half on the 10-year, come up a little bit. Uh, I think it's 1.8 around there. How are you reconciling rates still being where they are and then looking at equities where they are? Well, I mean, the the growth of earnings, obviously. I mean, if you look at the earnings yield on the S&P 500, it's, it's substantially higher relative to long-term interest rates than it was um, for most of its history. And it has been for most of its history. Um, you've regularly in the past few years been able to pick up the S&P 500 and an earnings yield that's substantially higher than um, earnings yield is just the inverse of the PE ratio. So a 5% earnings yield is a 20 times PE. Um, it, it, you've been regularly over the past few years been able to pick up earnings yields on the S&P 500 substantially higher than treasury yields. Um, so to me, I mean, like obviously that that valuation technique of just subtracting the 10-year treasury yield from or 30-year treasury yield or whatever treasury yield you want from the earnings yield of the S&P 500 on either a trailing or a forward basis, whatever works, um, you know, that's a very crude um valuation technique and it's not going to get you super far. Um, but as a sort of a sanity check, um, I think it's a pretty reasonable exercise to engage in. And, you know, if the argument is that equity markets need to be substantially lower than where they are right now, because interest rates are so low, my question would be, why do you think earnings yields on the S&P 500? And again, it doesn't matter if you use a trailing or forward, it's it's immaterial. Um, You get the same result either way. Why should earnings yields be so drastically higher relative to where where interest rates sit right now? And I don't think the only reasonable answer I've heard from that is an expectation that earnings should drop substantially. So you're forecasting recession, essentially. Not you, but whoever is making this argument, right? Um, Right. and if that's the case, then your argument is, okay, we're going to have a recession. Therefore, the equity market should be substantially lower than it is right now. 
okay, fine. That doesn't have anything to do with interest rates. Um, and, you know, I, so I, I think tracking, you know, if you want to do like tracking over time of, oh, well, if the S&P is trading up, that should mean the economy is strong. So 10-year yields should trade up as well. Well, maybe sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. There's no consistent correlation over long periods of time between bond yields and the stock market. Um, there are periods in the economic history where they have a strong positive and strong negative correlation. And what is determining whether that correlation is positive or negative doesn't always stay the same and it can be quite confusing. So I just think it's generally speaking um, a mistake to say, well, if, you know, if the 10 year yield is here, then stocks should be there. Well, why? I mean, it doesn't, the, the two are largely independent variables in my, in my view. Right. And when you're looking at rates, how are you looking at this concept of inflation? So the Fed has employment where they want it. For the most part, they have inflation price stability where they want it. They're trying to, to, to create a little bit more inflation to, to reach that mandate. But when you look at the word inflation, it can mean many different things, right? So you look at asset price inflation, and then you look at CPI type inflation of, of rising consumer prices. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit and f- let's take the first one first. So asset price inflation. Do you buy this argument that p- we have risk asset price inflation of people reaching for yield or reaching out on the curve based on these low rates? Uh, I mean, it, it depends on the day of the week, man. <laughs> I like, so I, I, I guess I, again, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I agree with the premise of the question. And, and the reason for that is that, you know, if you've got a holistic view of financial markets, everything should price, you know, any, any, any value is going to be the discounted present, any price for an asset is going to be the discounted present value of a future cash flow stream. Um, and the way you discount that future, you know, you can have different assumptions about what that cash flow stream looks like, and you can have different assumptions around what that discount rate on that cash flow stream looks like. Um, at some point, all of that's going to have to take into account some sort of risk-free interest rate path forward, whether you use LIBOR or the 10-year yield or the three-month bill yield or the Fed funds rate or the five-year tips yield or whatever. At some point, you have to use some sort of benchmark assessment of your risk-free rate in either real or nominal terms as your foundational sort of anchor. Um, and then, of course, you can get radically different, you know, estimates um, based on fair value um, of an asset because, you know, even if even if you and I are using the same discounted or sorry, d- same uh, risk-free rate as our base of our discount factor, then, you know, we can still come up with radically different prices for an asset because we have different assumptions about cash flow or different assumptions about risk premia um, that otherwise affect the discounted present value in addition to the, the risk-free rate. Um, but, you know, so it's not like if everyone's on the same page with the with the risk-free rate or the quote-unquote risk-free rate they're using um, because they're not actually risk-free. It's not as if if you use the same risk-free rate, everyone will get to the same discounted present value of whatever the asset is. That being, that yeah. being said, 
If you change that risk-free rate, whatever that is, if, if through some combination of actual interest rate cuts by the Federal Reserve or promised interest rate cuts or promised interest rate hikes or whatever, whatever thing you're doing, if you bring that rate path of the rate as you know, the expectation down over time, of course, that's going to have feedback effects into other financial markets. That's literally what the Fed is trying to do. That's the design of their program, right? They're, they're aiming to do this. So like like that's explicit in in what they're trying to do so i'm not sure like why that's a, a surprise to folks you know what i mean like like of course like if, they, if you reduce the interest rate if you reduce the expected path of interest rates that the federal reserve is going to take over time of course asset prices are going to rise what what do you expect them to do right why would you expect them to go down in response to that if they're a bond mechanically they have to go up right <laughs> so yeah. I, yeah. That's a good point on the discount rate. So let's say if everyone is essentially using the ten-year, uh, the ten-year note, just just for purposes of kind of the conversation. As you mentioned, there's LIBOR and there's there's other things, but you know, GMO puts out their seven-year forward-looking expectations. Research affiliates, I believe, does the same. There's some other shops, and when you look at GMO, they've been wrong for a while. Um, and uh, not just them, but a lot of people were talking about, okay, expect these single digit, you know, low returning type of, you know, returns for let's say us equities. And we've had kind of the opposite of that. And then 10 years later, now you're, you're seeing these same stories. I saw someone posted on Twitter. I think I can't remember if it was Bloomberg or whatever. Many outlets have the same type of articles where it's saying, okay, pros are expecting low return environment for the next, you know, five, seven, 10 years. And I think the key issue there is, is looking at the earnings growth and the growth rate even if 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 you keep the the risk free rate fixed or they're using the same risk free rate so you have the growth rate that they're factoring in which can be wildly different and then also this when you look at stocks as this kind of forward looking uh price mechanism is that uh how, how do you think about that piece well so by definition if if just taking the 10 year as an example right if you're if you are a bond investor and you are buying the 10 year note today, you know, whatever the current 10 year is and holding it for 10 years. If yields are low, right? So let's say the yield on the 10 year is, I don't know, what is the yield on the 10 year right now? One, one, eight, one, seven. I can't remember. Yeah. Call it. One. Okay. So if you're buying that today to hold for 10 years, that's your return. The yield that it currently offers is literally that is your return at an, on an annualized basis. That's it. Yeah. End of story. So, mm -hmm. you know, which is how fixed it's called fixed income for a reason, right? Your income is fixed. <laughs> so I guess my, my point is there that like, it's reasonable to expect interest rates. If you, you know, if you say today, okay, I think interest rates are going to be roughly where they are now for the next 10 years. And so I'll buy the 10 year note and that's going to be my return. Well, yeah, we're in a low return world. Interest rates are low. That's what a lower term world means. Now, how that applies to equities is a little more complicated because as we discussed previously, I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it than just the risk-free rate, you know? Exactly. Um, you know, so I, I think in a, in a world economy where nominal GDP is growing somewhere from five to 8%, depending on the year, give or take in us dollars depends. Again, it depends on the year. It depends on what oil prices are doing. That's the, that's a big factor, which is annoying, but oil prices are so big and so volatile that that has a big impact. Um, if you assume that let's say world nominal GDP grows at 8% for the next 10 years and that 
the S&P 500 is on average levered what? Two to one. It's probably less than that, but let's call it 50% equity and 50% debt. Um, well, 8% levered two to one is even after subtracting financing costs is going to be pretty attractive EPS growth over the next decade. Right. So, yeah, I mean that, you know, like now I don't know what the S and P 500 is going to do over the next decade. I'm not here to make decade long price forecasts, but I would really hesitate to um, make the argument that, you know, because returns are low that, you know, for fixed income, that means returns are low for the rest of the world because valuations are X. That means returns can only be Y. Um, you know, I, like, I, I think this is probably in terms of like, if you look at the history of equities, this is probably not going to be the best point to, to own a bunch of stocks and, you know, walk away for 10 years and come back and see how they did. Um, you know, I'm sure you could find better entry points and we've seen them in the last decade, right? Like by any definition, you know, when stocks have just sold off 60%, you're looking better than the, by the, than you were in terms of forward turns than you were right. when stocks we're about to sell off 60%, <laughs> right? Like if you, if stocks are about to drop 60% and then a year later they're down 60%, which one, which one do you want to buy? Obviously the latter, right? So like that, that, I don't think that's rocket science for any reason. Um, you know, I, I, th I think it's reasonable to expect equity returns to be relatively modest going forward to not expect gaudy gains that we've seen in a number of years post-crisis, but five to 10% per year, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me in a world where gross domestic product for the world economy, which is what the S&P 500 mostly trades off of, is growing six to eight percent. That seems pretty and, you know, has some leverage. And, you know, that doesn't seem crazy to me. Does it seem crazy to you? Right. Uh, no, no, it doesn't. Um, I think when you look at, you know, let's talk a little bit about the, the growth engines of the world. So you have China. There's been some talk about, OK, are they reporting their GDP accurately, and then if they're not, does that bring down you know, the total world's growth? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that as far as you know, kicking up some organic growth here in the U.S. And then when you look around the world, where do you see that that growth coming from? Well, there's no question that the, there has been a secular decline over the past decade, um, maybe two decades of global growth, right? Um, there are all sorts of reasons for this. And some of them are actually really, really, really good. Um, so for instance, demographics, right? If you have large chunks of emerging markets where, you know, the fertility rate is producing four or five children um, for every uh, woman of um, childbearing age, um, that is going to really do a lot for your GDP growth, right? Um it's maybe yeah. not going to be great for the women who are expected to produce those many children, that many children, right? Um, either culturally or because they don't have access to contraception or other stuff that we take for granted in a lot of developed economies. Um, if you suddenly, if your standard of living suddenly rises to the point where, oh man, I don't actually need to have five kids anymore, or if I, you know, want to, I choose to exercise, you know, some agency over whether I have five kids or not. Well, that's going to reduce GDP growth. It has to. Right. It might not reduce per capita GDP growth, but it's certainly going to reduce the aggregate if you if your fertility rate suddenly falls. And I don't think anyone could look at that state of affairs and say, oh, that's a bad thing. 
It's a bad thing that, you know, living standards are rising to the point where people have access to good medical care, where they could do basic family planning, or I, don't, I think it's a bad thing that, you know, um, women have access to what they need to, 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 um, exercise agency over their, over their reproduction or wh however you want to describe it. Right. I don't think there are many, many, very many people that will look at that state of, state of facts and go, Oh, that's bad for the world. Right. But I think mm -hmm. it's absolutely fair to say that that will reduce GDP growth. Right. It, it has to, it mechanically has to, because if it, because your population is dropping, it means per capita GDP needs to now rise much faster. Um, or your, the growth of your population is now dropping per capita GDP needs to rise much faster to make up for, um, the slower, uh, population growth. So, you know, I, I think that decline over the past two decades, and it's sort of been felt unevenly. Sometimes some years you feel it more, some years you feel it less, whatever depends on the specific economy. It depends on the specific region. It depends on, depends on the specific period in that last few decades. Um, I think that is a reason to think that structurally aggregate growth in the world economy is much lower today now than it was. Um, again, that is an example of something that has been, you know, quote unquote, bad for GDP growth. Well, that's one reason you don't exclusively look at GDP as a measure of economic vitality. <laughs> because again, using that specific analysis, there's no reason to look at that set of facts and say, oh, this is a bad outcome for the world. Um, in fact, I think it would, it's crazy to argue that. Um, on the other side of things, you know, um, there have been structurally lower per capita GDP growth, I think, um, related to a number of factors, not um, to come up with an exhaustive list here. But for instance, fiscal policy in Europe um, has, has absolutely led to lo much lower per capita GDP growth there than there would have been um, otherwise post-crisis. Um, in China, um, the reliance on a debt and fixed asset accumulation driven model um, has been very problematic for their long-term um, growth prospects um, in a way that didn't have to be. They could have grown slower in the 2000s um, and 2010s and had a much more sustainable growth rate, um, but instead they chose to pursue a model that didn't work that way. Um, so that's another factor. Um, monetary policy too, right? If, you know, what, what happens if the ECB, if Trichet and the ECB don't hike and create a double dip recession in the Eurozone in 2011, right? Um, that had a massive impact on, on trend growth around the world, just because that's such a large economic block. Um, you know, there's, there's a, something like, for instance, the rise of, um, of, uh, shale output in the U S, uh, taking oil prices from roughly around $100 to roughly around $50, right? That had a huge impact on a lot of economies that were growing really, really quickly. And suddenly, you know, in aggregate, we end up with maybe slightly less oil than we otherwise would. But, but because prices are so much lower, the way that we get that oil changed. And that has reduced overall GDP growth around the world. Um, you know, we have... Um, a, a much higher aggregate debt load than we would than we have previously, and that's going to change um, how fast the world can grow. If your if your debt load is high, it's harder to grow debt faster than GDP. Um, and when that's true, then you run into you run into constraints around how fast you can grow in absolute terms um, because you know debt is higher. So you know you can't just pump yourself full of credit to to get higher growth. Um, I think all of those are factors, right? And and that's not an exhaustive list by any means. I think it's totally reasonable to expect world growth to be much lower now than expectations for world growth were in 2009, 2000 or 
1999 or 1989. And I don't think that's any mystery to people. Uh, with regards to China specifically, yeah, I mean, they absolutely cook their economic books. That's well known. Um, the degree is, the question is to what degree? Um, I, I think, um, you know, an, an estimate of Chinese GDP growth in the low single digits to mid single digits is probably defensible. Um, I think an estimate of Chinese GDP, re real GDP growth of negative is not defensible. And, you know, everything in between is just going to be a fight over what kind of data sources you're using and the specific decisions and modeling you're making. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and, and the growth, the slowing growth in China is slower demand for a lot of base commodities um, is going to be a very big challenge for the world economy to sort through over the next four or five years. It's already been something that um, places like Japan have had to deal with. If you look at the machine, machine tool order um, series for Japan, I mean, brutal, right? 50% annualized declines um, for a sustained basis for a little while. Um, it's now bounced a little bit from there, but hasn't really upticked substantially. Um, you know, if you look at um, what's happened in the German auto industry is another example. I mean, not all of that is because of China. Their emissions are a much bigger deal than they get credit for, but a lot of that is because of slowing Chinese auto sales. And that's related to a slowing Chinese economy more generally. So, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think China is a big concern. Um, the one nice thing about China is that their debt growth, their, their growth has been entirely domestically funded. There's been no material buildup in external debt. So that means that when it comes time to reorganize the balance sheets of the economy um, to, basically work out the bad debt that's been created over the past two decades. Um, they're going to have a much easier time of doing that than if they'd funded it all in dollars. Yeah. And you brought up a couple good points regarding the kind of debt demographics, deflation. We have these forces like technology and these different forces pushing down kind of these inflationary pressures. So we we see inflation in certain pockets like healthcare, arguably maybe college tuition prices, those type of things. Um, and we've seen these asset prices rise, which we already covered that piece. So when you're looking at these forces, I was reading or saw an interesting tweet about Blockbuster Video where they had um, something like over 80,000 employees and Netflix employs something like 5,000 people, probably mostly engineers. And then you have the situation of when you look at the car that you buy these days, they're a lot more techni technologically savvy. You basically put gas in the car and then drive it, change the oil maybe once a year, those type of things. So there's less need for uh, the type of mechanics. And then when you look at the iPhone, obviously the well-documented case there, you've got the camera, you've got the notepad, you've got... Um, I saw an interesting article where it showed it actually replaced like, I don't know, 20 different items. So how are you looking at those forces um, of, of pulling down the, the kind of the deflationary pressures? I don't think it's any different from any process in the history of capitalism, honestly. I mean, like capitalism mm -hmm. is really good at maximizing the amount of utility you can get out of a specific set of resources. And what that looks like over time is falling costs for basic goods. I mean, that's, that's something that's literally been around since the end of the 18th century, um, you know, and, and really obviously accelerated during the industrial revolution. Um, you know, improving quality of goods over time is, that's not new. Um, and it's not new that a lot of these goods are being made with less labor input because again, like 
that's what capitalism does. It fights labor costs. That's like the whole point of the system. And it's one of the reasons that it's able to generate such spectacular outcomes in terms of um, reduced costs is that it is really, really good at eliminating costs when it can. And, you know, sometimes there are negative side effects to that, um, you know, whether it's uh, disputes over share of national income or, you know, share of a given enterprise's income between the workers and the people that are um, controlling the enterprise, um, you know, that's not always been handled smoothly by either labor or capital. But I mean, there, there are obviously also major problems with capitalism in terms of um, how far costs get internalized um, and how um, costs are um, distributed to society as a whole. Um, because sometimes it's cheaper to just push the cost of something onto somebody else than it is to actually reduce the cost in some sort of innovative way. But in general, right, over time, over the last 220 years, basically, um, we've seen again and again and again some sort of innovation that's been developed that destroys an incumbent because it's that innovation allows something to be produced much cheaper or much better than the existing alternative. And that over time has led to lower inflation than otherwise would have been the case. It's led to higher economic output than otherwise would have been the case. And it's led to higher per person or per hour productivity than would otherwise be the case. And I think all the things you described, whether it's, you know, Netflix versus Blockbuster, whether it's the amount of technology that's in cars, whether it's the iPhone replacing a bunch of other stuff that we otherwise would have had to carry around. That's just the story of expanding productivity and expanding quality of products that are offered by a market-based system. I don't think anything is new there. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't around in the 19, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, last couple of weeks of the 1980s, but um, you know, I like I wasn't around for that. And my understanding is they had plenty of new products that drove people out of business over that time, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, let's talk a little bit about inflationary expectations and go speaking to the point on jobs and fiscal spending. There's some sense out there that once we get monetary and fiscal policy working kind of in conjunction, then that's going to be the impetus for some inflation and growth and maybe rates rising a little on the long end. Um, talk a little bit about how you're thinking about fiscal policy and and maybe we can talk a little bit about so-called MMT and um, how you're viewing all this. Well, I mean, I, this year in the past, let's call it, let's call it past year. We're recording this the end of November 2019, certainly since December of 2018, um, we have had expanding deficits and easing monetary policy. Uh, we, you know, the combination of um, rising spending mostly due to um, entitlements, but also some other reduced um, spending caps um, on a more short-term basis, uh, as well as the impact of the tax cuts or yeah, the TCGA, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Um, those two things have continued to drive much wider de- the, drive the deficit much wider. Um, and we've had the Fed easing at the same time, either signaling or executing on three different interest rate reductions in 2019. 
-hmm. What has inflation done? Almost nothing. I mean, it doesn't look too bad, but it's certainly not spiked. It's certainly not in some sort of area where we would be materially concerned about it being too high, uh, you know, whether it's headline or core, however you want to describe it, right? It's roughly 2%, give or take. Uh, you know, it's dinked and dunked. It looked like it was really weak in the spring and looks stronger now, but it, whatever. It's all pretty similar. Um, so what does that tell you? Well, I mean, you mentioned MMT. And from an MMT perspective, that means we can run way bigger budget deficits than we're currently running. We're currently running roughly 5%, 6% GDP budget deficits. Um, I don't know what the ceiling on budget deficits is relative to GDP, but we can certainly say with great confidence that right now, if we wanted to as a country, we could spend a lot more on stuff um, because inflation is signaling that there is a very low constraint on real resources, on the physical and human capital of the economy to produce stuff. There's just not that much demand chasing chasing those productive assets. And if that's the case, then you can continue running larger and larger budget deficits for the foreseeable future. And, you know, like the, 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 the constraint on budget deficits in this worldview is always and shall ever for and shall forever be inflation. Right. If inflation is low, then you can run bigger budget deficits and that's it. And there's really nothing else to talk about. And I mean, I, I think, you know, that MMT has a lot of ways of looking at the world that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think it's generally true that if you're, if, if inflation is low and you want to stimulate the economy via budget deficits, the downsides to doing that are relatively low, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to see an argument that we should spend less, um, you know, improving people's lives when the negative side effects of doing that appear to be just some numbers on a spreadsheet somewhere. Right. And do you have any concerns with debt to GDP levels where they are being so high as far as if we did have some inflation, being able to raise rates, maybe causing our, our deficit to go out of control there? No. I mean, again, look, look at where inflation is. Why should I worry about mm -hmm. debt to GDP if inflation is low? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's just so that's you it. Don't... I mean, that, that's the beginning, middle and end. Um, if the thing to remember about Dutch GDP is that we're always going to be able to meet the interest cost requirements of servicing that debt. That is never an issue um, in, a, in, a, in a monetary sovereign like the United States. Um, this would be true for the UK, Canada, Australia as well. There's, there's no concern, right? Um, so, um, you know, and what about this idea that we could have kind of an inflationary type recession or market dislocation compared to in 2008, we had that kind of deflationary um, crisis. Do you, do you see, obviously, you know, you want to think in probabilities, but how are you viewing something like that based on everything that we talked about? Probably Probably not, but well, like I just I like I don't understand why the assumption would be that deflation is the current like so we had talked about how there's all these you know there appear to be all these forces creating deflation right like um, yeah. my argument to that is they're not new but if that's the case then is is are you are you basically arguing then that um, in a recession all those forces go away and now the problem is inflation right why would that change? Right. Well, you know, with inflation, maybe having animal spirits or something kick up to where, to where, 
maybe those forces aren't um, are overtaken by something else. Maybe it's a sentiment shift or or something like that. I just I just don't understand how we go from a world of deflation and economic growth to now people are going to want to pay more for the same thing, even though growth is now a problem. I just don't understand, like the, I, I just don't see the mechanism for that. I mean. Let me, let me put it this way. There is absolutely a set of circumstances that I could dream up where that could take place. Like for sure. I could, I'm sure I could come up with something. Uh, right. I'm having a hard time because oil is no longer so constrained in terms of who can produce it. Thanks to shale. But that was the classic example, right? Is commodity prices, mostly oil surge and you have stagflation like we had in the 1970s. That is yeah. no longer possible because of the changing production of oil. Like we, we've introduced a new technology and that scenario, specifically oil, right, is no longer viable. Right. If oil prices shoot up, that means uh, massive yeah. growth in the United States in terms of employment and activity in the oil patch. And there's you know a feedback loop, a negative feedback loop there. So that, that stagflation that took place in the 1970s, in large part due to commodity shocks, that doesn't work anymore. Demographics suggest that we're not going to have a structurally high inflationary scenario in any developed economy or the world as a whole in any near future, um, which was, again, the opposite of that was true in the 1970s. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm sure there is some hypothetical future where we could have high inflation and low growth, but I've, I haven't yet to hear of a plausible contemporary scenario for how you would get there, let alone one that deserves consideration as a material risk. Right. And when you look at the argument of where the buyers of treasury is going to come from and what if investors demand a higher interest rate, at least on the longer end of the curve, what would you say to that point? Now, we obviously just talked about kind of all the reasons why that probably wouldn't happen. And then the, the big argument that I come up with is there's no other where investors going to go. Right. There's no other so I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm really struggling to see that side of the argument, but what would you say to someone who, who the problem with the theory that, you know, the bond vigilantes are going to go on a buyer strike of treasuries? Well, what are they going to buy instead? Exactly. What, like what you're going to buy JGBs? You're going to buy what buns? Like, come on, Germany's basically in recession, maybe not technically in a recession, but basically in recession driven by manufacturing. And they're running 1% of GDP fiscal surpluses because they think it's a venal sin to have over 60% of debt to GDP for, for a country. I mean, it's nuts, right? It's crazy. Um, you know, Sweden, the UK, um, you know, any Eurozone country, thanks to the political economy of the Eurozone, none of these countries can run large deficits. Right. Canada and Australia and New Zealand cannot provide safe assets to the world as a whole. They are too small. So you're left with Japan, where yield curve control offers you, I think, what, like 15 basis points on a on a 10 year um, nominal Japanese yield. Um, OK, they've got a lot of JGBs, but there's not a lot of turnover in that market because the Bank of Japan is basically the major buyer and seller of those securities these days. OK, so you can't do that for liquidity reasons. Where else do you go? China, where debt to GDP is 200 plus percent of G um, debt to GDP is like 240 percent, give or take. And you're talking about a country that doesn't have a very it doesn't have any interest at all in terms of 
um, political economy in or geopolitical economy in opening up its uh, capital account to allow people to buy however many Chinese government bonds they want, like no interest whatsoever. So who's the alternative? There isn't right. one. And so if that's the case, yeah, I mean, treasuries are not like just leave yourself up by as many as you can and everything will be great. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the bond vigilante scenario of spiraling interest rates out of control and massive risk premiums on U.S. treasuries is ludicrous. There's no, there's nowhere else for the marginal buyer of U.S. treasuries to go, um, barring some complete rewiring of how the entire world economy works. And, you know, of course that's possible. Probable? No. Right. And we touched on the demographics piece. So when you look at, you know, I'd like to just touch on on Japan really quick here. Now, when you look at obviously the, the market peaking in 89, 90 there, never recovered. The economy is much different from the U.S. and the demographics are much different. Um, but then also when you look in Europe, European equities peaking, haven't recovered. And when you look at obviously countries are, are different you mentioned germany but when you're looking at spain italy greece those type of countries with the really bad demographics how are you what would you say to someone that says okay um how, can, could you even compare that to to the u.s well yeah no you can't i mean you just can't <laughs> like, um and there are a bunch of reasons for that a big one is immigration right i mean Another one, the natural birth rate in the U.S. is substantially higher than it is in Japan. I mean, substantially, right? So forget immigration. It's still a different picture. Um, mm-hmm. A third thing is like using the Japanese deflationary unwind of their manic 1980s as the starting point doesn't make sense because we already had the manic deflationary unwind and it ended differently in this country thanks to what um, Ray Dalio calls beautiful deleveraging, right? The Fed eased policy sufficiently and the um, fiscal authorities stepped in to the point where a large chunk of private sector liabilities was transferred to the public sector in a way that didn't cause a massive destruction of economic activity. And so, you know, I mean, that like, Japan is not, Japan is just not the the, um, analog for where the United States is today. Um, and I, I don't see how it could be a, a reasonable one within Europe. I mean, I would honestly challenge the, um, comparison of Spain to Italy, to, to Greece, let alone comparing all those countries to the United States, or Japan. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. Um, the demographics in Spain, um, do not look as bad as they do in Greece. The fiscal situation doesn't look anywhere near as bad as they do it as it does in Spain. The debt levels don't look anywhere near as challenging as they do in Italy. Um, so I think all of those are sort of false comparisons in a variety of ways. Um, you know, if you look at how Portugal and Spain have adjusted, it's a very different story from how Italy or Greece has since, since the Eurozone crisis. Right. And so wrapping up kind of on that for your outlooks for yields, do you believe then that we've seen the lows back in 2016 and that we're not going to retest those lows, at least let's say in the 10 year uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't. I mean, I think the next time we have a U.S. recession, it's hard to imagine that the Fed will not cut rates to zero, um, back to the zero to twenty-five basis points range. Um, and it's hard to imagine that the Fed will not re-engage with quantitative easing. Um, I think those are both perfectly reasonable expectations. So, for the next recession, is it possible that 
um, the 10 year yield trades down to 1%. It's possible. I could see that happening. Um, when, you know, but that doesn't help anyone make money off of what I'm saying right now, because I don't, I don't forecast a recession near term. Um, so, you know, right. Uh, I think it's all, it's, it's just going to depend on, on what else is going on at the time. I mean, you know, if fiscal authorities step up in the next recession, which they didn't in 2008, 2009, they really didn't, um, thanks to politics in the United States. Um, the, if there is a commitment, a bipartisan commitment to ramp up physical stimulus as the economy is falling apart, as opposed to somewhat in the aftermath and crushing austerity in the wake of that, um, then I think the reaction of the 10 year will be very different from what happened in 2008 through 2010. Um, but whether that actually takes place, it, I, I probably wouldn't bet the house on it anyways. Um, you know, that, that coordinated fiscal response. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't think the world has changed to where, you know, you shouldn't be buying interest. You shouldn't be buying bonds when the economy is falling apart or into the economy falling apart. I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, right now, the economy is not falling apart in part because the federal reserve listened to the market. The market said, we're worried about recession. The fed said, okay, we'll give you a few cuts. And the market said, okay, great. This looks good for now. We may come back for more, but for right now, things look okay. And that's kind of where we're at today. And I don't, that, that's just not what you see headed into recessions typically. What you see headed into recessions is the Fed saying, okay, more medicine. And the market saying, ah, we don't like this. This is going to cause growth to collapse. And the Fed saying, nope, inflation's too high, more medicine. And the, Fed, the market saying, look, inflation may be a little high, but trust us, this is not going to go well. And the Fed saying, nope, more medicine. And eventually real interest rates get to the point where the economy can't handle it anymore and the whole thing collapses. That's what happened in each of the last three recessions. And it's not what happened in the current situation. Similar to what happened in 1998, uh, the Fed listened to the market and did what it had to to forestall um, a recession. And that's good news because recessions suck. Right. And the last thing to touch on here is there's been a lot of talk about risk parity benefiting from kind of this headwind of, of falling rates for 30 plus years and talk about a 60-40 portfolio maybe not holding up in the way that it has if, if we get um, yields rising and then maybe stocks falling. But you brought up a good point earlier talking about how when you actually look back through history – uh, equities and fixed income, sometimes they're negatively cor- correlated, sometimes they're positively. So wh- how are you looking at that piece as far as um, a, a 60-40 portfolio for kind of the average person and pe- people saying, okay, this this could be a recipe for disaster? Look, well, first off, I, I, my problem with the 60-40 portfolio isn't that it's a recipe for disaster. It's just if you're 25 years old and saving for your retirement, you should not own that that many bonds. Like you should own as many stocks as you can, and you should hope that the equity markets get cut in half tomorrow. <laughs> you know, if you're in your 60s, then the rule of let's say agent, your right, age in bonds. Right, right. Right. I mean, I mean, like full disclosure, like my index, I have some of my retirement is discretionary, some of it's uh, indexed, and the indexed up is 100% equities right now. I'm turning 30 in December, so uh, you know, I but. Obviously, that's not necessarily investment advice for everybody, but you know, I, I think for me personally, that's where my risk tolerance fits. Um, you know, generally speaking, sixty forty is going to be appropriate, probably for like the, the the average or median investor. I don't think it's appropriate for everybody, and I think people need to assess their risk tolerance for it. But in, in so, I, I object to that to that characterization of the sixty forty portfolio. Um, that said, you know, look if if 
we get a situation where bonds are like like bonds are getting crushed and stocks are going down then yeah obviously a 60 40 portfolio is going to get hurt no kidding my question is if you're seeing interest rates on bonds shoot up while equities get smashed a what the heck else are you supposed to hold cash is that like so you're arguing right now a portfolio should be heavily invested in cash that sounds kind of crazy to me i mean that that's a, that sounds like a really good way to miss out on solid equity market returns and reasonable equity market returns for long periods of time, especially over the last decade, probably over the next decade. Second, like, what is your scenario? Again, this speaks to sort of the scenario where inflation takes off as a recession takes place. Where is your scenario that that plays out that way? Like, how does that happen? I will grant anybody out there that's claiming 60-40 will get you killed in the next recession or whatever. Okay, yes, if interest rates shoot up, and stocks also drop big, then yeah, that's gonna suck if you're in, six, in a 60-40 portfolio. But what is the alternative? And if the alternative is, oh, well, you should just be in cash. I should just be in cash now, really, long for long periods right. of time. How much am I gonna miss out on with the, if that's a type one error? Right, and that's that's then now you're going into kind of the market timing area, which is probably not the best way to go about your. I have, I you know, I have folks like you know, I meet in everyday life who you know, I tell them what I do for a living, and they say, oh, okay, cool. So, like, what should, how should I be thinking about investing? And I say, look, for most people, you should be in some sort of target date fund. Like Vanguard's got a bunch of target date funds that are great. Um, other providers have them too. That's relatively low fee, and you should never look at the market. Don't look at it. You're going to lose so much more money by trying to time the market because it's going up or time the market because it's going down than you will by just every month putting your nut in, whatever whatever you saved up that month that you can afford to put in, take advantage of tax deductible contributions, all that. Just put it away, put it away, put it away, put it away, put it away. And don't ever look at the market. And for most people, not for everyone, not one size fits all, you know, but for most people, that's going to save them a lot. It's hard to do that. And it's tough to be disciplined and say, well, I don't really care what the market's doing over the long run. This is what I need to do to, to earn a decent return. It's hard to do that, but they will be better. And it's something everyone can do with no understanding whatsoever of how markets work. If they just trust that process of I'm just going to continually save and not try and time the market because people smarter than me fail at it all the time. And I, that's fine. <laughs> you know, like if you have that mentality, I think most people are going to do fine in the long run. Um, and yeah, you had a great, uh, highly recommend a podcast that you did, you did on your podcast with Meb Faber uh, talking a lot about behavioral biases people buying at the top throughout history and in all those type of conversations. So I highly recommend that one, but George, why don't you tell us where more about where we can find you? Sure. So I am uh, bespoke's global macro strategist. You can follow bespoke on Twitter at bespoke invest uh, our website, which you should definitely check out for a bunch of the free stuff we put out on the blog um, is bespokepremium.com, B E S P O K E premium.com. Uh, like I said, we got a free blog there as well as a couple different tiers of um, subscription stuff uh, where you can get my thoughts about what's going on in the global economy, as well as other comments from other um, bespoke personnel. Um, you can also follow me on my Twitter account at perks P E A R K E. And finally, I occasionally write columns for Business Insider. So you can see some of my work there in their opinion section as well. 
Great. Thanks, George. And I'll link all that in the show notes. And uh, we really appreciate you having Awesome. Having come Thanks on. so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks, George. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.